to talk about, so now we're going to do a new talk here on uh, the evolution of love. So what a long, strange trip it's been, right? The Grateful Dead lyric. Um, it's really powerful to appreciate the passage of time. One time uh, I hiked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, and you look at these layers of rock there. They're like a band about an inch high. You know, it's a little darker than the surrounding red. And then you realize, maybe you read the guidebook, that that's 20 million years. 20 million years of sediments, you know, two inches. Are you kidding me, right? And, um, you know, it's really a long time. Uh, in that long run, you know, multi-celled creatures arose about 650 million years ago. Uh, the nervous system began about 600 million years ago because those multi-celled creatures had become complicated enough that their sensory systems and their motor systems needed to communicate with each other. That's the beginning of the nervous system. They needed to exchange information, that word again, you know, as the fundamental nature of what uh, is the mind in lowercase m inside the natural frame. Mental activity is information processing, most of which is unconscious. Right? And then mammals, uh, warm-blooded uh, mammals arose about 200 million years ago. Uh, one nice thing about being warm-blooded is you can hunt at night which gave them advantages. Uh, and then primates 60 or so million years ago, uh, tool manufacturing ancestors with brains a third our size, about 2.5 million years ago, those uh, early hominids. And then genetically modern humans about 150,000 years ago. And then biological evolution continues. How many of you have blue, green, or hazel eyes? Don't be shy. You're mutants. <laughs> Nobody had blue, green, or hazel eyes till about 5,000 years ago, genetic studies show, someone was born around Denmark who was very popular. <laughs> and so are his or her descendants. And here you are today, all right? So biological evolution does continue, but cultural evolution is much more rapid. You know, if you think about it, to put it in context, so we have this long run, tool manufacturing hominids, you know, two and a half million years ago, agriculture, or in related things like the domestication of animals, essentially arose about 10,000 years ago. The invention of writing, about 5,000 years ago, you know. The Industrial Revolution, loosely, just 250 years ago. Uh, my dad was born in 1918 in a sod house on November 25th in North Dakota on a ranch, right? And he's still alive and going strong. And just think about what's happened in his own life, you know? Uh, in his lifetime, it's been discovered that uh, we're in a galaxy and that, in fact, there's not just one galaxy, but there are about 200 billion galaxies all together in the universe you know, on average having loosely 100 to 200 billion stars each. Wow. In an, and also in our lifetime, it's been discovered that there are planets circling many of those suns, including small ra rocky ones in, that could potentially hold water in a liquid form. All right. Wow. Um, kind of the prerequisites, if you will, for life as we know it. So, you know, it's been a long, long, long process, right, that we've been participating in. But the cultural evolution, the changes in culture, which can create some misadaptations between the Stone Age brain and modern life, you know, culture is a lot faster than biological evolution. So, that's kind of an overarching theme. What do we do with this Stone Age brain, you know, with seven billion other Stone Age brains in this very fragile lifeboat, planet Earth in the 21st century? Right. Okay, so 
Uh, this slide has to do with a study that was done in Japan, and it's an illustration of um, the social brain. And so I'm going to kind of go through it a little bit here. And the fact that it was done in Japan is, I think, culturally, culturally relevant. So the, the slide is busy, but I'll kind of unpack it. Um, this study was done in two stages. In the first stage, these entering freshmen, these were young men, into a, an elite uh, university, were told very authoritatively that there was some about somebody else in their class who was much smarter than they were. Okay, much more successful, already very, very accomplished, fast tracking, going to get all the money, going to get all the girls, the whole deal, right? And they were inside an MRI, they were inside the scanner when they were told this information, right? So they were asked, uh, how do you feel about this, you know? I don't like it. Envy, grumble, grumble, bad, you know? And meanwhile, in the scanner, in their brain, the physical pain networks of the brain lit up the red pictures over there, all right? Which means that social pain depends upon and draws upon more ancient physical pain networks, which illustrates two points. One point being that more recent emotional, social, conceptual capabilities are built upon more ancient, more primal, more fundamental, more early mammalian, more reptilian, right? more wormish. We share about 20% of our DNA with bananas. Right? Let's put it in perspective. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, critters. <laughs> okay. All right? That's point one. Point two, you know, as the mind changes, the brain changes. In other words, as you tell someone that there's a competitor who's a lot, who's really superior, right? Their mental activity is shifting, which entails underlying neural activity to shift. In other words, uh, the, the activation of regions in the brain that perform that particular kind of mental activity. Okay? So that was phase one in the study. Then in phase two of the study, these uh, students were told, oh, by the way, this rival who's so superior to you, he has suffered a humiliating downfall. He was caught cheating. He's been expelled. He's scorned. He's out. How do you feel now? Great! <laughs> yeah, schadenfreude, right? Uh, I think envy and schadenfreude are very underrated emotions in terms of their impact on us. And guess what? Physical pleasure networks in their brains activated at the same time. Physical pleasure networks as the basis for social pleasure. Again, illustrating that intertwining of our more recent social experiences, including subtleties of envy and schadenfreude, taking pleasure in the misery of others, right, uh, are very, very intertwined with the brain altogether. Okay? So this helps me make this broader point, which is that in the what's called social brain theory, it's considered that the primary driver, not the only driver, but the primary driver, certainly a major driver, of the evolution of the human brain over the last several million years, if not the last several dozen million years, have been the survival benefits in hardcore biological evolution of love broadly defined. In other words, individuals or bands that were better at reading the intentions of each other, communicating with each other, getting better at language, being able to cooperatively plan, uh, being more committed to their children, uh, being more willing to be altruistic, to give you a banana today, 
with kind of the expectation that when I need it, you're going to give me a banana tomorrow, right? Creatures that were more that way in terms of their genetic variation were more able to survive. The odds were better that they'd live long enough to have children and, in fact, live long enough perhaps to have, help their children have children who also survived, right? That's the underlying notion of the social brain theory, and there are many examples of it. For example, um, birds and mammals have bigger brains in proportion to body weight than uh, fish and reptiles. What do birds and mammals do that fish and reptiles usually don't do? Sing. <laughs> yes, that's true. I'm trying to think how that could help them survive, but it's good. And I'm a fan. I'll get into later. Like singing is actually incredibly good, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Although people pay me not to sing, but I do it anyway. Um, okay, what else do birds and mammals do? They raise their young. All right, good. That's exactly right. You know, reptiles and fish, they like have their young, and you know, the reptile or fish come back a few days later, and the young are still there. Hey, it's lunch, right? They have no idea. So, but you know, birds and mammals are not that way. Also, primates. Primates, the different, there are a lot of primate species. The primate species um, that are more social, they tend to have larger groups. Uh, they also interact with each other in more complex ways. They, too, have bigger brains in, in proportion to body weight. Okay? And then, finally, humans or hominids. You know, as I've just been describing, there's a lot of evidence that hominid groups that were better at cooperating with each other and interacting with each other were more able to survive and pass on their genes. This, basically, is the social brain theory. And as Darwin says here, it's a lovely quote, all sentient beings develop through natural selection in such a way that pleasant sensations serve as their guide and especially the pleasure derived from sociability and from loving our families. So I'd like to show you some images right now that are both, you know, kind of that tell the story of uh, this process through pictures and um, also are a way to observe your own responses, right? If, uh, if there's any, how can I put it, you know, if there's any question about how social we are as human beings, you know, just wait till you see these pictures. So to begin with, Aww. see right there, aww, you know, it's like human, like, you know, like lizards don't go, aww, you know. <laughs> Even chimpanzees, chimpanzees are like social, but they'll do IQ tests. I love this stuff. Like, who invents these things? They'll do an IQ test on a two-year-old human, uh, an adult chimpanzee, and an adult dog. I think it's kind of cool. And so, how, you know, just to invent cross, you know, like meaningful tests of intelligence. A chimpanzee is much better than um, a two-year-old child or a dog at solving physical problems, right? Figuring out how to get food or get out of a cage or make something happen physically. On the other hand, tests of social cognition, being able to think about relationships or communicate or cooperatively plan or interact skillfully, that two-year-old child will beat that adult chimpanzee hands down, as will the dog. Right? Dogs are unique in their capacity to read human intentions and communicate back and forth with us. So that's kind of cool, I think. Okay? So chimpanzees, they look at that like whatever, you know. But we like, oh, you know. Okay, good. So Let's talk about this story. Yes, fathers do play a role in the wild, but a pretty limited one. Um, 
You know, for example, even in primate species, very social, in 95% of the primate species, the only contribution uh, the male, uh, the father makes to the survival of his child is the contribution of a single cell. Right. Uh, other than that, psh, you're on your own, kid. You and your mom, whatever. Right. So, as you know, problematic as many human fathers are, relatively speaking, compared to other species, human fathers uh, engage in what's called paternal investment, uh, much more than 95% of other primate species. So, a lot of action with the mothers and their young. This is an elephant. Have you seen these videos of elephants painting? Yes. I mean, Crazy, it's great. All right, so gorilla, primate band. Notice the detail here. This is a her baby can hold on to her back, right? Humans can't. Human children have this long period of vulnerability, longest of any species on the planet, in which they require a tremendous amount of maternal care, which, as the story unfolds, required a growing amount of paternal investment and ultimately a village it takes to raise the child. You know in a nutshell here. So in terms of humans, mother baby. My first book was about mothers and taking good care of them over the long haul. You know, if you want to change the planet in a generation, invest heavily in mothers. Hello. Um, so older mother. Adult child. We have two young adult kids. Our daughter right now is in, the, uh, is in Georgia teaching English. You thought it was the state, right? No, it's the country. But anyway, um, you know, she's there. So I think about her, like, hope she's okay. You know, we get these pictures, which is really great through the courtesy of the internet. But for mothers to sustain the care that they needed to sustain over a long period, an extended period of dependency uh, for human children, um, the brain of an adult chimpanzee is twice the volume of a newborn chimpanzee. The brain of an adult human is four times larger than the brain of a newborn human. Right? So what are we going to do? Well, in nature, one option would be to give, produce babies with brains twice their size, but then mothers could not give birth and still walk upright. Right? So in terms of developing this brain, you know, the brain tripled in volume in the last three or so million years. Um, what had to happen was an extended period of childhood to take advantage of that developing brain, which required an extended period of maternal investment, which required a unique kind of mate bonding that drew, that drew mates in to help uh, protect that mother who had to carry that kid around. She couldn't just walk around with her hands free with the child clinging to her back. She had to hold that child, right? Or hold it with her hand to make sure it wasn't eaten, et cetera. You know, and that drove uh, the, the growing quality of mate bonding in the human species. Many, many different kinds of mate bonding, right? right. These are real people, okay? <laughs> Very real people, okay? My own heritage a lot is Scottish, so this I think was the first gay couple married in San Francisco. I love the kilt, you know, I gotta go with the kilt there, gotta get that thing going. Um, and of course, as mate bonding increased, so did paternal investment. Many studies have shown that fathers are perfectly competent caregivers and their children can be as securely attached to them. Um, obviously, for lots of reasons, mothers tend to play a primary role on average in terms of uh, child rearing, and they have a unique role, obviously, in terms of child bearing. 
Uh, but fathers are, you know, very involved in the care of children too, often. All right. Older children, adult children, check the noses. You can detect a genetic similarity there. All right. Then you have couples raising children. All kinds of couples. Then we have extended families. This is some kind of family reunion, probably in Nebraska. I have no idea. But anyway, right. families around the world. And then by extension, we start having broader and broader networks of generosity, which is where we began today, cooperation and altruism. Here's a nice quote from Albert Schweitzer. If there's anything I've learned about people, it is that there is a deeper spirit of altruism than is ever evident. Just as the rivers we see are minor compared to the underground streams, so too the idealism that is visible is minor compared to what people carry in their hearts unreleased or scarcely released. Humankind is waiting and longing for those who can accomplish the task of untying what is knotted and bringing these underground waters to the surface. Just a detail, I learned recently that the Buddha very often used the language of disentangling, unknotting, you know, and it's interesting just to see Albert Schweitzer here using that same thing. How can we disentangle ourselves from the causes of suffering inside our own mind and how can we disentangle ourselves from others? Which is very much where we'll be going in practical terms, you know, over the bulk of this workshop today. So here's an example of people in Habitat for Humanity who are um, building houses for people they'll most likely never meet. Form of altruism there. And of course, altruism crosses species. We have here, a, I think that's a baby porcupine and a cat. Um, you know, I, I remember seeing this photograph, I, I really should resurrect it and pull it out, of a homeless man in San Francisco uh, who has befriended and be, been befriended by a dog, a cat, and a rat. And one of the things he, do, he, he does, and, uh, and I have a photograph of it, or I've seen a photograph of it rather, he has the dog here, the cat standing on the dog, and the rat standing on the cat. And that's a really skillful way to get people to give you their spare change, right? And it's a real illustration of what's really, really possible here. So then I want to just tell you a little story and show you the final slide, and then we'll take a break and come back. Um, this story actually happened nearby. You may know it. Um, apparently, a humpback whale out by the Farallon Islands had gotten tangled up in various fishing lines of different kinds and was drowning because it couldn't swim effectively and breathe, right? And a scuba diver saw this, spotted this, uh, and sent back uh, uh, information to a marine mammal center that this had happened. So what they did is they sent out uh, a bunch of scuba divers to, un, uh, to cut, talk about disentangling, you know, unknotting, to cut the lines that were trapping this whale and ultimately killing it. So for a long period of time, they worked right next to this enormous creature, this enormous animal, um, cutting the lines, um, looking it in the eye, you know, just a few feet away. It was really quite an extraordinary experience at risking their own life. Because at any moment, the whale could, of course, panic, thrash around, and kill them. Well, when they finally 
disentangled the whale from its own bonds of suffering, it swam around, leaping for joy, and then it went to each scuba diver individually. And this is an image of that. <laughs> it just knocks me out. I don't know about you. I've seen this picture a lot because I presented it. It chokes me up every time, you know. Um, like, wow. So, you know, this is who we are, right? This is really, really who we are. So let's keep that in mind uh, when we come back from the break and I talk about the other side of the equation uh, using the metaphor of two wolves in the heart. So how about if it's okay with you, we'll take a break right now and do me a favor. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.